Newton was born in London, an only child in 1725. His mother taught him to read scripture and memorize reformed catechisms and hymns. Together they attended an independent congregational church in London, which was a Puritan-derived group. At age seven, however, Newton's mother died, and he fell under the less religious and more distant care of his sea captain father. From age 11 to 17, John accompanied his father on five sea voyages that proved a stern and thorough education in seamanship. Between these trips, he was allowed to run free, and he got himself into ample adolescent trouble. Though he fell repeatedly into temptation, he always rose again, resolved to live the life his mother had shown him. On each of these occasions, he turned for a time to such Christian disciplines as prayer, pious reading, and the keeping of spiritual diaries. In all of these activities, he later remembered, his chief aim was not to please God, but to escape damnation. In 1742, soon after John's father retired from the sea, his father announced the good news that John would soon make his fortune. Captain Newton had arranged for his son to go to Jamaica. His father's dreams for John hit a snag, however, when the impulsive 17-year-old sailor met Mary Cutlet, the daughter of family friends. John not only fell hopelessly in love with Mary, but decided on the spot to miss his ship to Jamaica in order to stay and woo her. When John returned home weeks after the Jamaica-bound ship had left, his father resolved that his son would learn discipline, so he sent him on a month-long voyage as a common sailor without his own parental protection from the harshness of the seaman's life. <coughs> In the company of the rough crew, Newton soon lost the last of his former religious resolve. He took up smoking and swearing and indulged his lusts at the journey's destination, Venice, Italy. The God he had learned to worship at his mother's knee seemed a distant being with no claim on his life. In the following months, Newton missed a second voyage on which he would have been an officer, again by overstaying for a visit with Mary. Then, on March 1st, 1744, John was traveling to see Mary when his life took an unexpected turn. Newton fell prey to a naval press gang. Now, we don't have such gangs now, but this was a group of men who would go around and shall we say, press you into his majesty's service. They would grab you and you would now become part of the Navy. So, uh, within days, despite his father's intervention, he found himself a lowly crewman aboard a man of war of the Royal Navy. From the first, he was driven, half-starved, and broken from dawn until night. In short, he was treated, as were all young men in the 18th century Navy, for such severe discipline seemed the only way young sailors could be prepared for the extreme hardships and dangers of life in England's floating military. Bad as the physical abbreviations were aboard the ship, the voyage's effect on Newton's spirit was worse. The captain's clerk, a man named Mitchell, was a free thinker, only too happy to share his convictions with a young friend. Life, said Mitchell, was for the taking. God was a phantom invented by killjoy religious types. We must eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and just pass into extinction. Newton finally escaped the Navy and later aboard a ship named the Greyhound, Newton surpassed his earlier immorality and impiety, blaspheming to a degree that it shocked even the older men. Just as Newton seemed irrevocably lost to the faith, he picked up, for lack of other shipboard reading material, Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ. At first, the book's words meant little to him, but then the first pivot point of his life's voyage. 
The Greyhound's voyage from Brazil to Newfoundland, laden with slaves, led them on into a violent storm. In poor repair, the ship soon began to split and take on water, and Newton was awakened from sleep to find that the first crew member had been swept away in the raging sea. Tied to the ship to prevent being washed away, Newton pumped and bailed all night until he was called upon to steer the ship. All the while, he reviewed his life, his former professions of religion, the extraordinary twists of past events, the warnings and deliverances he has met with, his worldly conversation and his mockery of the Gospels. At first, Newton was convinced that he had sinned too much to have any hope for God's forgiveness. Yet when the storm did not recede and he really felt he would soon meet his God, he at last clung to scriptures that taught God's grace towards sinners. He breathed his first weak prayer in years. As he was later to recall it, this was the hour he first believed. Yet, Newton's new faith would not find a solid footing for some months. Indeed, the very next year, on a voyage as mate of a slaving ship, Newton backslid entirely, giving his lust free license. It was only when he fell ill with a violent fever that he came to himself. Feeling that he had crucified the Son of God afresh and thus had shut and locked the door of hope, Newton nevertheless mustered enough faith to creep to a remote corner of the island where, between the palm trees and the sea, he knelt upon the shore and found a new liberty to pray. After this episode, Newton never again went back on his faith. He developed a constant habit of prayer, and his watchword became humility. He said, what a poor creature I am in myself, incapable of standing a single hour without continual fresh supplies of strength and grace from the fountainhead. A series of miraculous rescues from death by storm, starvation, mutiny plots, and slave uprisings reinforced his sense of that grace. In the spring of 1754, Newton met a new friend, a Scottish captain not engaged in the slave trade by the name of Alexander Clooney. This was the first close Christian friend Newton had, and he was overjoyed. I was all ears, he wrote, and what was better? He not only informed my understanding, but his discourses inflamed my heart. Until now, Newton had thought of God as a distant ruler whom he must obey. Now he discovered that God could be very near and his love be warmer than Newton had dreamed. Later in England, one of his favorite contacts was the famed evangelist George Whitfield. In fact, Newton himself became known as Little Whitfield, not because he preached like the better-known man, but because he shadowed the great preacher, even attending meetings at 5 a.m. in the bitter cold of winter and dining with him when he could. He drank in the fellowship and spiritual knowledge with bottomless thirst. At home, he began teaching himself the biblical language and reading books of divinity. Then at last, in the spring of 1764, Newton found himself the ordained curate of a congregation in the English Midlands town of Olney, Buckinghamshire. Newton's first impression was of a low and dirty country whose inhabitants mostly dwelt in poverty. From the beginning, he did his work of soul care with the love born of a true pastor's heart, preaching, singing, visiting, and establishing midweek meetings of every description. He especially labored for the children of the parish, not only catechizing them personally, but also instituting annual three-day meetings during which the ministers from the surrounding area joined to preach and teach, especially for the benefit of the area's youth. Newton was known for his open, emotional manner in the pulpit, in the middle of a sermon, he interjection, interjected an impassioned prayer. The Lord proclaims a free pardon, and will you refuse to hear his voice? 
O Lord God, prevent and rend the heavens and come down and touch the stony heart that it may stand out no longer. We can imagine him turning his gaze on his hearers as he delivered the next line. Let us chide our cold, unfeeling hearts and pray for a coal of fire from the heavenly altar to send us home in a flame of love to him who has thus loved us. So this morning, we are going to look at one of the many passages that speak of the love of God for us. And we will be praying for a coal of fire from the heavenly altar to send us in home in a flame of love to him who has thus loved us. As we see how God's love was manifested and how God's love was demonstrated. So if you will open in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, and we're just going to do two verses this morning, but lots and lots to unpack in these two verses. First John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now here the apostle, bon, Paul, not Paul, I'm always talking about Paul, poor John, I'm talking about the apostle John this time, wrote this letter of 1 John, probably around the same time that he wrote his Gospel of John, he wrote this letter to Christians who were falling prey to the deceptive devices of Satan, honestly so common even in our day. Christians were fighting each other and not being loving to one another. They were hating each other, beginning to love the evil things of the world, and they were being seduced by false teachers, teaching them false doctrines. He also wrote to those who were doubting their own salvation, were doubting the goodness of God, were doubting the truth of the gospel. In his gospel, John wrote to arouse a saving faith, but in 1 John, his purpose was to establish certainty regarding that faith. In his gospel, he wrote about the good news historically, what had happened, but in this letter, he wrote, about the good news experientially. So what was this good news that all true believers have experienced? Number one on your outlines, he talked about a love manifested. A love manifested. Look at that first part of verse nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Now, there are three expressions in John's writings that help us understand the nature of God. He wrote that God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. None of these is a complete revelation of God, of course, and it's wrong to separate them. God is spirit as to his essence. He is not flesh and blood. To be sure, Jesus Christ now has a glorified body in heaven, and one day's we will have bodies like his body. But being by nature spirit, God is not limited by time and space the way his creatures are. Also, God, John tells us God is light. This is referred to his holy nature. In the Bible, light is a symbolism of holiness and darkness is a symbol of sin. God cannot sin because he is holy. Because we have been born into his family, we have received his holy nature. And then God, uh, John has showed us that God is love. This does not mean that love is God. And the fact that two people love each other does not mean that their love is necessarily holy. 
It has been accurately said that love does not define God, but God defines love. God is love and God is light. Therefore, his love is a holy love and his holiness is expressed in love. All that God does expresses all that God is. Even his judgments are measured out in love and mercy. So there in verse 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. Now that word manifested, to be manifested means to be or become clearly revealed to the mind, the senses, or judgment. Vines helps us kind of wrap our minds around this. To be manifested in the scriptural sense of the word is more than just appear. A person may appear in a false guise or without a disclosure of what he truly is. But to be manifested, this word right here, is to be revealed in one's true character. And then that phrase, in us, in the Greek, it actually means in our case. Or the ESV um, translates it among us. The King James and New King James says, toward us. By this, the blood of God was manifested towards us or among us, or it was manifested in our case. So it was clearly revealed to our mind, to our senses, to our judgment in the true character, God's true character of love. But how was the love of God clearly revealed towards us or in our case? A, on your outlines, God sent his son. It was clearly revealed by God sending his son. Look down at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God had sent his only begotten son into the world. Have you ever considered that God sent his son to save us and yet he did not have to save anyone? He would still be perfectly right, perfectly holy, perfectly just if he did not save a single person. He did not choose to save the angels that rebelled against him. 2 Peter 2.4 says, God did not spare angels when they had sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. God could have, in his holiness, chosen to do the same thing with wicked man. And yet, because he is merciful and infinitely kind, God did send his son into the world. Two, have you ever considered the different ways Christ suffered as he lived here on earth? We often, our minds go directly to his suffering at the cross. But consider the things he suffered during his lifetime here on the earth. In heaven, Christ had seraphim proclaiming his holiness, proclaiming his majesty, singing his praises. The angels adore him perfectly and obey immediately. He deserves all glory, all honor, all majesty, and yet he's born and dwelled among sinful men who did not even bother to notice him, bother to notice his birth. The very creator of the universe walked among them and they didn't even know who he was. He experienced hunger, thirst, pain, weariness. Consequences of other people's sin. He was born into poverty and experienced the want of necessary things like shelter because of his poverty. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. He was opposed, mocked, and rejected by his 
own people, the very ones he came to save, would not even listen. And yet, ladies, he did not suffer grudgingly or unwillingly because he knew he was fulfilling the will of his father. And that will was to save his people. It would do us good to often stop and consider these things. That Christ did not despise the suffering that he suffered, but did it willingly for us and to glorify his heavenly father. So God's love was manifested not only through sending his son, but also the fact that we, we live through him. Look at the rest of verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Ladies, we know without God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 is so clear. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, most beautiful words, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, ladies, as we begin the semester, as we look at our sin, I don't want to go any farther. You wanted a great job last week. Have you been considering your desires? Are my desires just for self all the time? Or do I desire to please the Lord? Have you considered your soul lately? Have you realized that you are dead in your trespasses and sins? Has God opened your eyes to the reality that you have no good of your own to cling to? Have you realized your inability to do nothing to earn God's favor? Are you still indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, only putting on a mask of morality and holiness when you come to the church? Have you laid hold of the rich mercy that God extends in his great love? Have you repented of your sin and trust Christ as Savior from that sin? Do you struggle with the thought that perhaps your sin is too great, as John Newton once did? But listen to what he said later. Would you then come before the high God? Come in the name of Jesus, and you shall find acceptance. In him, God is well pleased, and for his sake, he is pleased with all who honor his beloved son and put their trust in him. He has authority and compassion sufficient to save the most deplorable, and the most unworthy. So ladies, if you are struggling with the state of your soul, do not allow pride to hold you back. Deal with that. That is, to, that is so worthy to stop all of life to really dwell upon. Am I a believer? Am I trusting Christ? Do I only lay on his righteousness, his sacrifice on the cross, his payment for my sin? 
So sometimes we can struggle with the thought of, but what will everybody think? I mean, I've been saying I'm a Christian for years and years and years, but don't let, that's the kind of pride that I don't want you to let hold you back. All of us would be thrilled today if today was the day of your salvation. Ladies, we don't just do this for fun. I know you don't. I know you love the same Savior. But in, I know Yvonne's heart, my heart, is that not one of you, not one of you, experience the eternal punishment of hell. And I don't want to go any farther in this book without encouraging you, search your heart, search your soul. If you are struggling here, come talk to us, come find help, talk to your husbands, talk to an elder, talk to a trusted friend that you know knows the Lord. Let us walk you through that. Cry out to the Lord. And draw fresh encouragement that each one of us have things that we know, the wickedness in our own heart. And yet, God is bigger than that. God's love is deeper than that. God is able to save, even as John Newton said, the most deplorable and the most unworthy. So God manifested his love by sending his son that we might live. John also explains number two, love demonstrated. Love demonstrated. Look down at verse 10. In this is love. One of the commentaries I read said love. Here John's about to show us love in its highest ideal. The love was all on God's side and none of ours. So A, not our love. Because continuing in that verse, and this is love, not that we loved God. Matthew Henry said, he loved us when we had no love for him. When we lay in our guilt, misery, and blood, when we were undeserving, ill-deserving, polluted, and unclean. So God is not looking down and seeing the love that we have for him. We were born enemies of God. When I'm teaching my little people, I actually have it with me. When I teach my little people, we talk about the black heart of sin, the darkness of our sin. Um, so, because even at their level, I want them to know the truth. And the truth is you are born in depravity, in wickedness, in sinfulness. There is nothing you can do because you have to know the depth of your depravity and your inability to do anything good before you can cry out knowing that Christ is the only way. So it's not that we loved God, but be it's but his love, not our love, but his love. So verse 10, and this is love, not our love, but his love, but that he loved us. Again, one of the commentaries said, not that we did any act of love at any time to God, but he did the act of love to us in sending Christ. So this love demonstrated was not our love, but his love, see, shown through sacrifice. Shown through sacrifice. Again, look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, it'd be very easy for us. We know he's 
talking about Christ, so it would be easy for us to want to kind of glide over that word and not really dwell on it, but I actually would like to unpack that word because it's a beautiful word. So the word propitiation, Wayne Grudem tells us propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. What a beautiful word. So it's a sacrifice and it bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So that propitiation, that sacrifice that Christ did on the cross, bearing the wrath of his father. Again, I kind of want to meditate for just a couple minutes with you on what does that mean? We could see the physical sufferings as the gospels tells us of what was going on in Christ's body. And we can relate to that thing as we are human. If you cut us, we bleed. If, if we, we are hit, it hurts. But there was so much more going on there at the cross that it does our souls well to sit and to meditate. Um, uh, what I'm about to read you is kind of a squished together piece of both Wayne Grudem and um, a gentleman called Brockle, which is a Puritan. Um, I think you pronounce his first name, Wilhelmus Brockle. But just the way that they... Um, explain the propitiation. What did it mean as Christ was hanging on the cross, bearing the Father's wrath, and how we can take it and think through it. Um, they said we often focus on Christ's physical suffering on the cross, which was severe, but we often don't recognize the, he, the suffering he endured that was not visible, the sorrows and anguish of his soul. So ladies, he felt the extent of what sin is as well as what it means to be a sinner. We are born in our trespasses. We're born dead in our sins, but Christ was perfectly holy. So on that Christ, he felt that extent of what it means to be a sinner as the Father laid on him the sins of his people. He also removed all sins from the elect by taking their sins on himself as if he himself had committed them, thus standing in their place. So not only is he bearing the physical pain, but he is also being crushed by the sins of his people laid on him. He now felt what it meant to break the relationship with God, to forsake God. He was deprived of the closeness to the Father that had been the deepest joy of his heart for all his earthly life. Often, what do we see Christ doing after he's been ministering all day long? We see him going off and praying with the Father, communing with the Father. That was his greatest joy. But there on that cross, he now felt that break in relationship to forsake him. He was deprived of that closeness. He knew what it was to be disobedient to God, to oppose God, to sin against his law. And what an unbearable condition in him who loved God so perfectly. He felt the full force of being separated from God due to sin. It is neither imaginable nor can it be expressed what terror, what unrest, what darkness and misery are experienced when God in indignation fully separates himself from a sinner, 
withdrawing all favor, grace and light, forsaking, rejecting, and casting him out. He felt the full force of the curse, the just manifestation of divine wrath, the Lord's anger towards the sinner, the terribleness of falling into the hands of the living God and the experience of God being a terror. As this cannot be understood by anyone who has not experienced it, so we can only understand it in small measure and deduce it by all the different expressions we see in Scripture in Isaiah 53 and other places talking of his suffering. Taking on himself all the evil created deep revulsion in the center of his being. All that he had hated most deeply was poured out fully on him, meaning our sin. The suffering of his body was added on top to, um, added to the suffering of his soul. But after Christ cried, it is finished. Ladies, was there any wrath left for us? No, that is part of the beauty of the word propitiation. He paid to the end and in full on our behalf. If we are redeemed by Christ's shed blood on the cross and have his righteousness covering us, does God look at us with constant displeasure? Or does he look at us as our Heavenly Father with favor because of what Christ has done? Not because we were good, we were right, we were loving, but because he is loving. Jerry Bridges in one of our chapters said, God is now my Heavenly Father who loves me with a self-generated infinite love even in the face of my sin. Further, the assurance that God no longer counts my sin against me and that in my struggles with sin, he is for me, produces within me a strong sense of gratitude for what he has done and is presently doing for me through Christ. This twofold effect of encouragement and gratitude together to, to produce in us a desire to deal with our sin. It is our duty to do so, but duty without desire produces drudgery. And I think that's a good one to remember for us. Duty without that desire. That desire comes from that encouragement and gratitude together produce in us that desire to move forward and deal with our sin. It is our duty to do so. But that duty without that desire, it's just going to be a drudgery. Now, just like Yvonne spoke last week, our desires need to be shaped and molded by what God wants, not what I want. We need to cultivate a heart of gratitude as we move forward this semester in dealing with our sin. And ladies, it'll get long. It'll get hard. You'll be tempted to be frustrated or upset. You possibly might be frustrated at something somebody else says or frustrated because you feel like nobody understands your struggle with sin. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others as they wrestle through sin. But at the forefront of our minds, we need to keep all that Christ has done for us so that when the battle is long and we get tired, we remember, but look at all that Christ did for me. And we draw that fresh encouragement. We draw that fresh renewal of, thank you, God, for all you have done for me. How can I not turn and control my tongue, control my temper. 
How can I not have self-control? How can I not, as Newton said, drink fresh from the fountainhead, that spring of living water for every moment that I struggle? Ladies, one other thing we need to guard against is guarding our hearts against doubt. Our hearts desperately want to cling to self-sufficiency, doing it on my own. We don't doubt that God is loving. We just doubt that he loves us. We don't doubt that Christ paid the price for his sin. We just doubt that God only looks at us with favor now. Do we not doubt sometimes that his discipline of our sin is loving and for our good? Many a Christian gets stuck in this cycle of doubt that God truly forgives and he is for us, that they don't grow because they just get stuck. They don't believe that God does not get annoyed at their continual sin. The Holy Spirit is grieved. Do not be um, deceived by that. But do we not sometimes imagine a stern Heavenly Father who has his arms crossed and sighs as we come once again to confess the same sin over and over again? Is that not what we imagine in our own minds? Do you imagine that he hands out forgiveness only in small bits? Ladies, that is shaping your view of God according to your own reasoning and not by the truth of scripture. Listen to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. How are we supposed to draw near? With confidence. There's a cheerfulness behind that word. With confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Excuse me. So ladies, who are we going to trust? Will you trust that the Lord who says in his word that he is there at the throne of grace and he has all that we need for life and godliness? Or are we going to trust our own reasoning, our own feelings? I often hear some say that, well, I, I just, for Rachel, I don't feel forgiven. I just feel guilty all the time. Why would God forgive me? They have this constant feeling of guilt and they just get stuck there. Now, emotions are a good thing. Guilt is a good thing. When we sin, we should feel guilty for that sin. And that emotion should drive us to the cross to confess that sin, drive us to God for forgiveness of sin, drive us to the throne of grace the next time we're tempted to that sin so that we can get that help in that time of need. But if we have a false guilt that's just, it's just nebulous. We never have a particular sin we need to confess. We just walk around in constant fear that God's angry with us and we're not clinging to the promises of scripture. Oftentimes we're trusting in our own feelings. Sometimes we're subtly trying to beat ourselves up to appease God for our sin. And that's wrong because Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our sacrifice. We do not need to beat ourselves up because Christ paid for that sin. That is very freeing. That's what Jerry Bridges was talking about. We're free to deal with our sin because Christ paid the price for that sin. Now we can draw near. 
Now we can do what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So are we going to trust that? Or are we going to trust our own feelings of, but I don't feel forgiven. Ladies, God's word is more sure than our feelings about ourselves. Our heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful beyond all imaginations. It wars, our flesh wars against the spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But we need to cling to the promises of scripture. All right, Lord, I am sorry for fill in the blank for snapping at my husband when I was irritated. Please forgive me, help me as I interact with him to control my tongue, that I would love you more than that pleasure of getting that quick comeback and that I would please you with my tongue. You gave me my tongue. Please help me to use it for your glory. And then I walk forward, not because look at me, I did the right thing, but because scripture says he is faithful. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is what I cling to. That is what I believe. And then when I'm feeling weak, I run to the throne of grace knowing that God loves me because of what Christ has done on my behalf. So therefore, there is no stern brow, crossed bolt arms. God is, an impa- God is incapable of impatience, which is what annoyance is. So he's incapable of it. He does not get annoyed with us. We often think that way because that's how we respond to other sins, right? Or even our own sins. I get really annoyed with myself a lot at my own sins. Do you not? And yet, are we running to the fountainhead like John Newton said? Drink from that well of living water. Find forgiveness at the cross and then move forward dealing with our sin. These are the things I want you to encourage your heart with. It's good to dwell on Christ's sacrifice for us, but also the practicality of propitiation means God has fulfilled the wrath of God for that sin. I confess it. I ask for forgiveness and I move forward with confidence knowing that he has forgiven me because he is faithful. Newton said, when believers after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and spiritual insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ, then Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. So that's what I want for us. Yeah, we're going to experience these things. We're going to experience failure. But are we confessing it? Are we asking for forgiveness? Are we trusting that God has forgiven so that we can move forward and grow? Are we dealing with with these things in our heart? But are we flat going to commit? I will trust what God's word said more than what my own heart is making me feel sometimes. Now, sometimes you have a feeling of guilt for a reason. That onion needs to be peeled. You need to get at the root of what are my desires? What do I want in this moment? Is my emotion revealing a sin that's going on that I need to mortify? I need to cut it off. I need to kill it. And I need to live for the glory of God. With John Newton, throughout all the years of his ministry and fame, John Newton never forgot how far he had come. Over the fireplace in his vicarage study at Olney, where he would always see it as he prepared for Sunday services and midweek meetings, 
he placed a plaque reading in large letters as follows. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. And that's Deuteronomy 15, 15. When he died, Newton left behind the epitaph that remains today on his gravestone. It returns to this same twin theme of slavery from sin and unmerited redemption. His tombstone reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. So ladies, take that as an encouragement. God used John Newton. God can use you too. He has one more, one more quote of encouragement as we transition into our small groups. John Newton said, Blessed be God, amidst all my changes, I find the foundation stands sure. And I am seldom or never left to doubt either of the Lord's love to me or the reality of the desires he has given me towards himself. Though when I measure my love by the degree of its exercise or the fruits it produces, I have reason to sit down ashamed as the chief of sinners and the least of all saints. But in him, I have righteousness and peace. And in him, I must and will rejoice. So ladies, as we move through this semester, it's going to get easy to get discouraged. It's going to be easy to get overwhelmed. I want you to remember these things that yes, when we measure our love to Christ, we're going to find wanting and lacking, but we can rejoice that he gives us a fresh supply of energy, of love, of what we need in our battle for sin. We are equipped in Christ with everything we need. And then we can take heart in that and excel still more and push still forward and kill that sin even deeper and that in him we can and will rejoice. Let's pray.